0: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the
1: hosts of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwood, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello everyone and welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Jeff Emily Peterson, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I lost count of how many episodes we've done, Jack. I think we're on episode 54. I meant to check, but I have my guest in the studio with me. Alan Salkin is the author of the new book, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. And we were talking about our shared... New Jersey Pride, and uh, I didn't check to see what number episode we're up to.
0: 54 is correct.
1: 54. Thank you, Jack.
0: It was in New Jersey that I learned that I believe 9 times 6 is 54.
1: <laughs> Did you have to do multiplication tables?
0: Yeah, and I, left, I moved out of New Jersey when I was in fourth grade, so we were starting. Mm-hmm. 9 times 9, 81.
1: 81. I very firmly believe in uh, rote memorization of basic arithmetic like that, and it's not not a popular way to teach math anymore in elementary schools. That's kind of frowned upon. So there will be times tables in our house for in exchange for like TV watching privileges or iPad or whatever in. 10 years, I guess, the iPad equivalent is that my kid wants, because something, there will be something he wants, and I will make sure he knows that 9 times mm. 9 is 81. Can I
0: give you one more? I learned this in California in 8th grade. All the v- forms of the verb to be is, are, was, were, be, being, been, has, have, had, do, does, did, may, might, must, can, could, shall, should.
1: Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Now wait, do you know which ones are like participles? and no. which ones? Yeah, see, I lost the grammar thing, too. I was uh, not, math and science were my strong suit, and art and hanging out with the art kids. That was my thing. So you've written a new book that I have a lot of questions about. First of all.
0: From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network.
1: First of all, how long have you been talking about this book? I did my first
0: interview right here with the Bresnitzes on Snacky Tunes probably three years ago.
1: Okay. So what has the feedback from the Food Network been since then?
0: They are acting, for the most part, 90% of them are acting like I wrote Mein Kampf. (laughs) <laughs> but that's Adolf Hitler's autobiography. Mm-hmm. People.
1: Okay, so tell me, how did you come? How did you come to write this book? Of all of the stories that you could have told, what was what made you want to tell this one?
0: And all the gin joints. I um, I, I was working at the New York Times, uh, writing uh, culture stories for the Sunday Style section. I don't know about style, as you can see, but. I was sent down to cover the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, which is the annual, like, Sundance Film Festival, the food media business. And I was amazed that people like Rachel Ray and Mario Batali had bodyguards and handlers and and agents. And this was the year that Emeril had sold his businesses to Martha Stewart for $50 million, $50 million. And I was like, you know, I, I have a no, speaking of Mein Kampf, I actually have a no World War II, no mafia, no Kennedy's policy. I don't write about that stuff because there's too many other people fascinated by it. So this was an amazing world full of money and celebrity. And I had no idea, you know, I was maybe the last, this was 2008. And I was like, what the hell happened here? You know, how did this, this world form? And as a journalist, you know, I was trained to be interested in, you know, different little social strata and different little worlds. And so because I wrote about the festival for the New York times, I then profile John Rosen, who's the talent agent to Giada De Laurentiis, and uh, Bobby and Rachel. Um, And, you know, so I got a name in this world as writing about this. I don't just write about food. In fact, I'm not really a food writer. I've become one a little to do this book. But um, I got a reputation. And so people started talking to me, were willing to do it. And that's why.
1: And how did you get in? Like, how did you get people to start talking? I'm curious to know, like how you got the information. You know, I
0: that. went to Berkeley and, um, I took a great class in cultural anthropology. Uh, Laura Nader, who's actually Ralph Nader's sister taught it. And, um, the way cultural anthropologists work is they show up in a village, you know, somewhere, anywhere, even in America and hopefully a village that's not yours. And the longer you hang out, the more people start trusting you and they start telling you their stories and, and, you know, they, you're just a familiar face. And so I started traveling around mostly to food festivals all over the country and the world. I'd be invited to some, or I'd pay my own way, whatever it was. You know, difficult destinations like the Cayman Islands and Pebble Beach and Portland. And eventually, you know, Amber else you know, who's a celebrity chef, just among others, it's like, oh, it's you again. Or I went to one in Vegas and, you know, basically ambushed Bobby Flay. That's how I first met him. You know, and he was just impressed that I had... You know, a, a notebook ready and a camera ready. And, you know, Bobby is always impressed by people who seem ready to play whatever the game is. So that's that's mostly how I did it. And then, you know, people started realizing, you know, and I could go on and on for an hour about this. But the Food Network, I had been led in by their former head of media relations. And she because I wrote a piece for The Times about the cooking channel. And so for that piece, I sat in on planning meetings and strategy sessions and tapings of various shows, and so I had a lot of material already. All the chefs are independent contractors; they were talking to me. All the talent, and so the network, I think, made a decision: well, this dude's doing the book anyway; we we might as well, you know. They didn't open the kimono fully, <laughs> as they say, <laughs> but you know, I got some. You know, I got the second base with the kimono open.
1: <laughs> and so, what were some of the most surprising? early things that you learn. Like, there's something that you said about Reed Drummond being not camera-ready at all. Like, how did oh. you, like, tease out these individual stories from people?
0: You know, it's, there's many different ways, and mostly I would sit and interview them for hour upon hour and let them know I'm not just one of these food reporters who wants you to, you know, ask you the question, um, tell me how you make your turkey for Thanksgiving, which is one of the most common questions, or just this gushing... Coverage that so many of them get, and there, there's so few backstories told about what these famous people who are household names are really like. Um, and you know, I've been doing this twenty years. Hopefully, I'm a good interviewer, and I, I, people get interested in telling me their stories and who they are. And and you know, the longer they talk, the more you can just follow a thread, and the more they realize you know what you're talking about because you bring up names that they can't believe you you know about. Um, and so that's one way, just the long interviews. I did a lot of interviews in the um, <coughs> in the uh, lobby of the Algonquin Hotel. It's a good, rare place in New York City where you can sit for hours for the price of a cup of tea, and it's not too noisy. Um, and then I would, in the case of Reed Drummond, I didn't get an interview with her, but she gave a talk at uh, some internet conference that she was paid like you know a couple hundred grand to show up at, and so I just sort of took a whole transcript of that talk, and I found some great details that would fit into my story. In the case of Alton Brown, who I mean, most of them did interviews with me. You know, everyone always wants to ask about who didn't do the interviews. I don't know what <laughs> and why, but most of them did. You know, almost every star you can think of, I did an interview with. But so
1: we, I just want to clarify. You said yeah. no, no, and and this is <laughs> as someone who aspires to be on food television. Yeah. This is I'm like. Well, the book is a
0: primer for that, I think.
1: (laughs) How did they, did they not sign non-disclosure agreements? I did Cutthroat Kitchen and I signed basically my life away.
0: Well, what you signed away was you couldn't say who won before air date.
1: I can acknowledge my participation is my understanding. Right, but this has become more
0: sophisticated. (laughs) You know, the Food Network for the first 10 years or 12 years of its existence, the contracts were a joke. They didn't even think anybody would ever care about what happened. I mean, you know, Emerald got the rights to his all of his shows because nobody was really watching the contracts back then, which is what helped to make this deal with Martha Stewart. So, um, you I, know,
1: I have a vested interest in the Alton Brown story, too. So go tell Well, anyway,
0: that. Alton didn't do an interview with me. We'll cut kitchen. You know, well, I want you to tell me everything that happened. <laughs> um you know, I think Cutthroat Kitchen is an emblematic of of the, oh, the the lows to which Food Network has reached at this point. Even the title, Cutthroat Kitchen, it's mean. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. what this network should be about, in my opinion. But um, Alton, I got an interview. Somebody had profiled him for Atlanta Magazine, and you know, I know how this stuff works, and it's so it's always amazing to me that people don't call me. Um, and ask me for the whole transcript or the whole interview I did with various celebrities because I have great stuff that did not end up in many, many stories for, you know, by Annie Leibovitz or it goes on and on. Even there's a new movie Foxcatcher out about these murders and I could go on and uh, every digression. <laughs> but um, but Alton, there was a, there was a, the guy did a profile for Atlanta magazine and 90 percent of what he got in this interview wasn't used. So I called him up, he you know, sent me the transcript, I think he took a couple things out that he was sensitive, and, and that was, so I had an interview with Alton, I just have, didn't happen to conduct it.
1: Wow, I didn't, I didn't know one could do that.
0: You I can do whatever just, you want, as long as you're not lying, or, or you know, making it pretending that you got it some way other than what you did.
1: Mm-hmm. So, from when it started, and no one thought anyone would ever watch, how did, what was the arc to get to a place where Rachel Ray has a bodyguard? Like, yeah. where does the money come in?
0: I, I highly recommend. There's a great documentary out called Supermensch. Uh, Mike Myers did a documentary about this guy Shep Gordon, not Chef, but Shep. And um, Shep was the talent agent to Alice Cooper, the rock and roll star. And uh, it Who was
1: was in Wayne's World. Had a cameo in Wayne's World.
0: Yes, this is how he got to know Mike Myers. Okay. It, yes, and this talk they talk about this. Um, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Yeah. <laughs> no and, longer.
1: uh, I could go on. I could quote Wayne's World from the oh, beginning well, to end. <laughs> as you should.
0: It's, it's disappointing seeing Dana Carvey in those lame, um, insurance commercials right now. Wow, he was, he was on top, man, and he just lost it. But, um, God, nevertheless. So um, anyway, Shep was a rock and roll promoter who who then eventually went on to represent Emerald. And Shep was the first guy that literally said chefs can be the new rock stars. And they can be marketed in that way. And, you know, there's money to be made, not just because they're on TV, they're, they can become brands. And then you can start selling their spices and um, recipe books and various things. And so... I mean that this is one little tangent, but basically the network started in ninety three. Nobody thought it was gonna work. It lost money for ten years. And then um the short version is Emerald Live was the first great hit in ninety seven. This sort of great blending of, you know, pop culture and, and the excitement of the Tonight Show with cooking. Um bam, you know, all that stuff, was well, there's funny stories in the book about how bam came about. And um and then you get Iron Chef Japan is the sort of breakthrough competition show, and there's a, you know, a young guy who gets screwed out of everything he's ever deserved, including the credit until my book came along, who really was the one who brought out both Alton Brown and Iron Chef Japan to TV. And then 9-11 comes along. And unfortunately, 9-11, or fortunately for the Food Network, a terrible tragedy, but it was the best thing that ever happened to the network because it created this desire for cocooning I don't know about you but I slept with two ex-girlfriends in the wake of 9-11 and I'm, I know, I'm not recommending a national tragedy to get laid but it just shows that people wanted comfort and they were looking for the simple comforts and so Rachel Ray's show 30 Minute Meals happened to debut uh, November 2001 it was it was already in the can and
1: And it was something other than the news coverage, the twenty four hour news cycle. Yes. I remember that yes. very well. There was
0: no footage of the building collapsing. Mm-hmm. It was just this very sweet, nice, amazing storyteller, which is what Rachel is. She's a great, you know, television personality who just showed you the simple way that you could put a meal on the table and even if you weren't gonna do it. It was a great fantasy, you know. These TVs have gotten so big, it looks like your own kitchen, except it's nicer and the people are better looking and the food's better.
1: When we got our new television, I realized that the size of the head and shoulders is the size of a human head and shoulders in our living room. It's
0: just like porn, you know. I mean, (laughs) what's happening on the screen is a lot better than what's happening in the room that you're actually in. So, um, in some cases, not in my case. So, anyway, so, so that... You know, in that era, once Rachel comes along, there's this new vision scene that we don't need chefs anymore. We can have personalities, which is where you get Ina Garten and um, Sandra Lee and Giada and all the Hellspawn, as you know, of as Tony Bourdain will, will tell you. Um, and then, you know, it, it just starts snowballing. They become personalities. Their brands become bigger, and then we kind of get to where we are today.
1: When I was on Cutthroat Kitchen, which I can I want to talk I, I'm like now I'm like genuinely concerned <laughs> um, it was a television show in which I participated on, in and one of the other contestants was uh, had been on Hell's Kitchen and so he had been on the Gordon Ramsay has your show from, aired yeah mm-hmm, okay. yep. uh, did you win I came in second I got beaten in the muffin competition by a guy covered in face tattoos yeah And it made for excellent television, and it was... Well, it's great that
0: Food Network, you know, in my book, I make the point that they don't even... For years, they didn't acknowledge that food people and chefs were the types who would have face tattoos. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's nice that they've finally gone there into the kind of the real world of food. Uh,
1: Yes and no, because this guy, and I really liked him. We spent, you know, we spent a good deal of time together on the set. He's very charming, and he's very funny and friendly. And I wondered if, because he'd been on Hell's Kitchen and he has this very specific look, he was kind of... Cult, he's kind of cultivating this reality star circuit cuz yeah. now he's the ta- face tattoo chef yes. and he won Cutthroat Kitchen he came in in the top 5 in Hell's Kitchen and my thought was I'm a teacher like I I teach at a couple of different places right. around the city and I want a bigger platform because I genuinely enjoy entertaining people and I love to be a storyteller and be on stage um the reality is though I don't want to be that guy you know I don't want to be a reality show Competitor making the circuit because I'm like the all-American mom who's a really good teacher playing for $20,000 cash prize at the end of a half an hour or 60 minute show whatever it is and I wonder if there's room for new uh, approaches I find there is a missing piece of the kind of Tina Fey Amy Poehler dynamic in the food world I feel like women Women are friendly and they wear cardigans and they're not particularly funny, you know, and where men like Andrew Zimmern and Anthony Bourdain don't have to be warm and approachable. They get to be, you know, smart and edgy first and attractive second. Although there is a picture on the Internet of Anthony Bourdain holding a femur. He's otherwise naked, but there's a femur. Yeah, I love that picture. My girlfriend has it set as her ringtone, so when I call her, that picture comes up. Bourdain
0: is is the great talent of it. <laughs> you know, he's the Mark Twain of all of this. He's an absolute genius. Um, and but, uh, you know, I would argue, uh, it, oh God, the, the, you know, the face tattoo guy is interesting because I, 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 you know, both you and I probably believe that if you have a face tattoo, can I say a bad word on this? Sure. Yeah. If you have a face tattoo, you should be an asshole. You shouldn't be nice. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, it that that even that has become divorced from any meaning is annoying, and yeah. Okay, so this is the face tattoo guy who's safe for TV, and that is what has happened. And Food Network, unfortunately, because it's Knoxville-based, you know, the owners are Scripps Interactive, Scripps Networks Interactive, and there's just an innate conservatism from the from the word go the food network was not about teaching the world to be a better cook or spreading any gospel about a foodie way of life it just became that it was a way to make money in the expanding world of cable tv that was going from 30 channels to 500 at the time so that dna is still there you know they just they don't really care about and i'm not saying they should um, I'm not it,
1: saying that Food Network is the right platform for me either. I'm well, not. but it,
0: it should be, you know. And, and I, I, think that's the problem is they've hit a wall. They've hit a plateau. They're trying to get gritty with, you know, Richard Blaze has a new show on, sort of, you know, in latter day Alton Brown with some of the sort of science of food stuff that looks like it's very smart. But they're making six episodes, which is what they do when they, they don't really want to commit to anything. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll agree to spend ten thousand dollars, you know, so. I would argue that Anne Burrell is at least something of a real um, live wire, not pleasant person, who is great to watch on TV because mm-hmm. of you know her her just irascibility and you never know what she's going to do next. Anne Burrell's not a great person to hang out with um, unless you're looking to be around somebody who drinks a lot of alcohol and you get a lot of free drinks by standing next to her. But um, I've
1: heard a lot of stories about Anne Burrell and. Every single one of them, that's what it gets said.
0: Yeah, I There's mean, no
1: contradiction that she's not a super nice person.
0: <laughs> right. And, and you know, but that doesn't... That's not... Who is good on TV is not, you know, who's nice. Right. And so somehow, because she's willing to work her ass off, you know, and because she can endure probably not getting paid a lot just to be famous, I don't know how it works. Um, you know, she, there she is. So <laughs> at least she's not Giada De Laurentiis. Jada, it's one. It's like one
1: syllable. Like, <laughs> well, I just see a gleaming smile and nothing else.
0: But you know, as to what you know, what's working and what's not working. You know, Guy Fieri was the last winner, of Food Network star, the last to to break through, the last household name to be created. Love him or hate him, and another guy who you know, even if you hate him, you know when he's on TV and you you have a feeling and you you can't stop looking at him, which is why you either switch off or you keep watching. Mm-hmm. So. You know, it, it, the network has lost the formula. You know, after 9-11 with Rachel Ray, they in 2003, 4, 5, this network was really at its peak. You know, Bourdain had a show on the Food Network. People forget, a cook's tour. So they had that guy. They had Paula Dean was starting. Everything was rosy. Um, things were just expanding. The food, you know, the foodiness of America was just seemed like it was going to go up and up and up. You know, and now we're sitting here looking out at Roberta's and, you know, there's a lot of people here who are just here because they saw it on Yelp and it's supposedly good. And, you know, it's like everybody kind of knows now. And so is it that the Food Network has lost its cojones and can't put anybody challenging on? I'd like to see them try. Mm -hmm. I, I always like to see people, you know, go down fighting, you know, in the best possible way.
1: Do you think they're going down?
0: They are going to simply become another brand on the cable dial and then in whatever becomes of how we consume entertainment. But they are not going to be, in my opinion, the sort of ascendant, you know, must watch or you can't help but watch channel. You know, they were up there with ESPN for a while, even though they weren't, you know, they were only barely in the top 10 as a cable network. You go to every gym and it was Food Network was on. It was this sort of national comfort food. It was important. It felt like you were learning something. And that excitement about it, to me, seems to have gone out of it, and mm-hmm. yeah, there'll be a nice profitable brand. You know, people will like it, but is it going to be this? You know, major cultural force going forward? I don't think so.
1: What would your advice- ratings
0: are going down, but ratings yeah. are going down for everything, and and they're tr- and Scripps is trying to sell the network. Oh yeah, I mean Ken Lowe, you know, the president of Scripps is trying to sell his whole company. You know, it, it's and he because he recognizes what's what's happening with cable TV.
1: I want Bourdain to buy it. Like- <laughs> well, isn't it interesting how he was
0: on Scripps, you know, he was on Food Network, and then after two years of Cook's Tour, they told him, you know, you get better ratings when you visit barbecue joints in the South. We don't want you eating, you know, Cobra Heart in Ho Chi Minh City anymore. And he said, go to hell. Mm-hmm. And he ended up on Travel Channel. And then Scripps bought Travel Channel. And, you know, lo and behold, he can't live under that umbrella there either. And now he's making an even better show on CNN.
1: Right. Which also picked up Mike Rose show after the Discovery Channel canceled dirty jobs, which is also scripts, right? Discovery? No, no.
0: They're Discovery's different. a big route. In fact, Discovery's one of those where they always talk about potentially buying Food Network.
1: Ah, okay. I I just I'm endlessly fascinated because I feel like food was mysterious but everything was mysterious you mentioned pornography and i i have a i have a son now and i'm like there's not gonna be any mystery around anything anymore because everything's so accessible on the internet and i wonder if food television it's so accessible to google a recipe that you don't need to like you don't need to watch television for comfort anymore
0: well you don't you know, in like 2007, they were doing studies of Food Network and they realized, you know, in the early days, you had to send <coughs> a self-addressed stamped envelope into the network to get the recipes. And that's why they started their internet site, to save money on stamps. Okay. Um, and so they realized that, okay, now people just can watch this. If they get inspired, they, they're they going to add the internet as part of this experience. And now this is all obvious. and. There's a million rival little cooking tidbits you can see if you want to know how to cook something. It's all there, and you know, either an app or something. So, the 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 need to know, the need to learn, the amazing, you know, seeing Julia Child on Sarah Moulton's show in the early days, just talking about boiling eggs for half an hour, how, you know, the perfect way to boil an egg. Yes, those days are probably done, and so you know, the network is just left showing nothing but competition shows. I don't know. You know, if I knew, I would pitch the show. <laughs> but if you look at, um, you know, History Channel, and, you know, even though they, they've gotten in trouble with um, the Duck Dynasty people, um, but Pawn Stars, there's still great stuff out top there. Top Gear. And I love Top Yes, gear you've got to take chances. That And that is the story. You know, I was going to ha- start the book with um, this poem called Ode by Arthur O'Shaughnessy, which is, this, this, which is what... Gene Wilder recites in um, Going Through the Tunnel in um, uh, Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. you know, We Are the Dreamers of Dreams. And it was it was chance-taking in the early days. It was a crazy idea for a network. It was who, who the hell would put a Japanese Godzilla-like competition show on television? You know, they did it, and it worked. Um, but would they do it now? No way. Right. And so... You know, you've got to drill a lot of dry wells. And I go through this as an investigative journalist, which I am. You know, everybody talks about, oh, we want a great story. We want to, you know, but they pay you the same for an investigative reporting piece as they do for a piece about what eyeliner to wear. (laughs) Um, And you have to, you know. Those
1: are both pressing issues. I mean.
0: (laughs) You could use some eyeliner. I know,
1: but you're, you're seeing you're seeing my real your radio I'm, face, my radio face, my radio black t shirt. You're jeans very uniform. attractive, young woman. There's no question,
0: people. We do, we're doing this both in you know bathing suits. You look great in a bikini. Wait,
1: you're wearing a bathing suit
0: underneath this. Um, I'm going to the, Under the jacuzzi kimono. later. Yeah, but anyway, you know, I, I think. Um, there's uh, – I have no idea what I'm still talking about.
1: No, right. I don't know either. Um, what are you investigating? What is it still food that has your interest peaked, or are there other things that you are – I'm right now currently fascinated by North Korea. So that's, that's nothing. Yeah,
0: to do. I, I – well – Personally, I'm continuing to do some stuff in the food world, mostly because it's a hell of a fun world to write about and be in, you That's know, to so show true. up at restaurants and have people think, oh, you're somebody. And to put their most beautiful thing in front of you is just such a treat. And it's it still interests me. You know, it's a visceral pleasure. And I'm working on a uh, fictional television pilot right now that I don't want to talk too much about. So <laughs> it's an exciting, different writing project for me with a partner in L.A., and um, But I think the energy of the culture seems to me, if I was going to predict what's next after food, because basically it was rock and roll and then food. Um, You know, and if you think about the last maybe, you know, interesting, truly interesting thing to happen in rock and roll was probably Nirvana, which is sort of the symbol, singing about the end of it themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so right at that time, 91, 92 is when Food Network starts. So that kind of picks up the baton. I think it's something about, you know, self-help, spirituality, meditation. I think that's the the new thing, the new frontier as we are, you know, so hyper busy. You know, there's so many articles now about how to turn off your cell phone. It's like in the old days when they'd come on and tell you how to budget. It was always stop buying the cappuccino from Starbucks. Do you know that that 5 dollars a day, you could have a vacation at the, end? you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we, we've heard this like every <laughs> fucking financial advisor in the world. Um, you know, and now it's like, you are really, you know, when you go on vacation, turn off your cell phone. Yeah, I've heard that, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I think that's that's where it is. Well, right?
1: Arianna Huffington said that she sets an alarm for when to go to sleep. And I thought that was, I can't do that until my kid's out of the house, which is 16 years from now, because he kind of, you know, runs the show, um, especially in the sleep world. But I thought, as someone who, as, you know, who wants to work a lot... To have to set an alarm to remind yeah. you to unplug, I think is smart.
0: You can see you're, you're interested in it. You have a lot to say.
1: Yeah. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And
0: I, there's a lot of energy in that. I mean, I could tell you all my secrets. One of the, well, I'll tell you the way I wrote the book, one of the best things I used was Mac Freedom, which is a program that is, you know, whatever $10 shareware, and you tell it how much time you want the internet shut off for.
1: That's, yes, I So it's that. like
0: 45 minutes at a time, and it is amazing when you shut it off how productive you can be. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when I wrote the book, I, I was I was both studying, you know, reading food books and food histories and David Camp's, you know, United States of Arugula, which is a great book. I love that book. Um, but I was also reading about how writers live, you know, and I was living in this house in the Hamptons that used to belong to. I was renting it. It didn't cost me a lot. It, <laughs> That's where I grew me, up. Yeah, where? Hampton Bays? Oh, yeah. Well, this was in Springs, and this was the Ooh, house that belonged to. It
1: didn't to... cost a lot. No,
0: it sh- didn't, because I run it at <laughs> an illegal share house out oh, there. Cool. And so basically, all my friends paid the rent, and nice. I, I was making a profit by subletting my apartment in New York. The house belonged to Saul Steinberg, who. It was a, a New Yorker cover cartoonist back in the day. And so it was his old house, and I was writing in his old studio. And there was all these – his old books were still there because his family owns it. And it was all these interviews with writers from the Paris Review and just how the life is lived and how these things get done. And, and in this world, you know, the short attention span, to actually have to sit and write a book and take yourself out of society to get something done that is not an immediate hit – you know, that is not ego gratification every day. It's really, really challenging. And so it took every it took every yoga teacher I had and every <laughs> bit of patience to get this done.
1: I started uh, training for 5Ks and then 10Ks and half marathons because it's, as a writer, it's kind of a similar practice of like, I have to go running every day whether or not I want to. Yeah. And I do find that there's, and this could be a whole spiritual overlap between writing and food and running because it works it does work to force myself even when i don't want to go and writing i haven't done in a while also due to you know toddler there was uh we have to we are out of time um i could talk about i mean this is i feel like i didn't
0: answer any of your questions no this
1: is i didn't really ask any we just talked (laughs) well you came in and you said you were overwhelmed by life and i wanted it to just be an easy thing for you to do for half an hour before you enjoy your pizza
0: I really want people to buy my book. If you want me to support me as a writer, you got to buy from scratch: the uncensored history of the Food Network.
1: And uh, are you? Where do you come down on the Amazon purchasing? I'm fine with. What? You're pro Amazon? Okay. I'm just. I'm, I'm, not I'm just. Pro, I
0: mean, I, I want people to. The publisher that I work for seems to have no problem with Amazon. So, what can I say? I I, I don't know how this is all going to shake out. I mean, I'll tell you this: the publish the a lot of the people in publishing that I deal with are not the. Um, they're not the most excellent professionals that I've ever met, and so something to shake up the world. I'm not saying Amazon's practices are proper, but I'm not saying that the way the publishing world is proper is working is proper either, so I, I don't know.
1: The book is called From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. My guest is Alan Salkin. I will put a link up on sharpenhot.com where you can purchase the book. It'll probably be to Amazon, probably. But you can go to your local bookseller if you have one in your town. Um, uh, let's see, what else can I tell you? I am on Twitter at Chef Emily P. If you have any cooking questions, Jack, the pr- uh, producer and engineer of the show, has been peppering me with questions. So I think I might put together maybe around the, the Christmas time, maybe the last show before Christmas, a listener driven question and answer sh- session show. So you can start tweeting your questions at me at Chef Emily P. And until next week Wait, one second, one more oh, thing. Yeah. Having a
0: book party tomorrow night at the Manny Canner Center in New York City, uh, October 15th, uh, 6 to 9 p.m. I'm talking to David Rosengarten on stage. Check alensalkin.com for and details And you're also
1: on Twitter at
0: Alan Salkin. A- everything's Alan Salkin, A L L E N.
1: You're very lucky. I didn't get Emily Peterson. I got Emily M. Peterson at Gmail. And the other Emily Peterson does not like it when she gets my email. So you're very lucky. There's no other Alan Salkin out there you're competing with.
0: That is nice. <laughs>
1: Until next week, everybody, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit.